Have you been in the studio all morning? I have. Nice. Yeah, I thought I would sort of, I mean, partly because I, uh, you know, I try to, I try to get here <laughs> a reasonable hour most days. This is Corey Hardiman. She is a visual artist based in Prince George, B.C., and I'm chatting with her remotely from her studio in the city's downtown, a place where she can be found more often than not. I thought it would be good to be working and thinking about work before, before the thing starts. The thing that is about to start is this interview. We're going to be talking about Corey's solo exhibition, Wandering the Edge of the World, a touring exhibition produced by Two Rivers Gallery that will travel around the regional district of Fraser Fort George to the communities of Mackenzie and McBride, B.C. This year, the tour is accompanied by an online version of the exhibition. So, if you can, I encourage you to find the link to the exhibition in the show notes so you can enjoy images of Corey's work as you listen to the interview. Today, we'll be talking about some of the paintings featured in Wandering the Edge of the World. We'll learn about Corey's art practice, including what brought her to the arts in the first place. We'll also talk about her process, inspiration, and environmental concerns. Oh yeah, and we'll hear about Corey's time living off-grid in a yurt. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hey, Corey, thanks so much for taking time to chat with me today. Thank you, Megan. I'm really excited to be able to talk about this body of work. Yeah, me too. Um, to let all you listeners know, Corey is a visual artist who primarily works in paint. She is originally from Halifax, Nova Scotia, but has lived in BC for many years and now makes Prince George, the traditional territory of the Clately Tanay, her home. So, Corey, when did you make the move out west? Well, I first moved uh, to Victoria from Halifax in uh, 1993. I went to the University of Victoria for my second year and graduated from that university in 1996. And then I uh, I moved to Vancouver uh, for a, about a year and a half. But while I was growing up and uh, and toward that time, my father had leukemia and was sort of declining in health. So I ended up moving back home to Nova Scotia for a year, uh, several years actually, to kind of look after things back there. And I moved out again to Vancouver in 2002, early 2002. And were you working at an, as an artist at that time? I was, uh, well, I was in school and then I was working for a veterinarian and applying to graduate school. And then of course my, my plans were sort of derailed by my dad's death and the, the sort of familial fallout after that. And uh, I ended up going back to school and doing a diploma in architectural drafting. So I, uh, during my, my sort of normal job having years, I worked as a draftsperson. And, and before you said back to school for architectural drafting. So that wasn't, mm-hmm. that wasn't your first. No, my first degree was in biology. Yeah. Yeah. That's the degree I completed at, uh, at UVic. And really my, my leap to being a full-time artist came after I got married to someone that had uh, spent a lot of time in art school. I, I, you know, I always painted and drew, but I, I was very trepidatious about making a transition to doing that for a living, partly because, you know, it's, it's a tough road to hoe being an artist <laughs> professionally. And also because it's such a personal undertaking. It was for me, it was like keeping a journal or something. So it didn't, didn't seem to me like a thing that I felt either safe or, 
are really ambitious about sharing with with just anyone. But it appears that you eventually gave in. I did, yeah. Sort of by process of elimination in a lot of ways. <laughs> I think I, I tried out other things and I just kept I just kept being an artist and, and so that that is you know, I think sometimes just the the way you are in the world catches up with you and, and that's that's it it's all just kind of happened for me. I like that idea. Yeah. Um, so the subject matter in your paintings, it's often drawn from the natural environment. Has that always been the case when you were even beginning your career? It has. I mean, I grew up drawing and painting uh, the things I loved, which were mostly things like dogs and horses as a kid. I, I was sort of obsessive about horses, like a lot of girls are, I think. And uh, um, uh, so I spent a, a great deal of time drawing them and it, it, it kind of grew from there as I became you know as I grew and, and got older and and thought more about the world and the way I occupy it that the sphere of things that interested me got bigger as well and also as a child I was surrounded by by work by people like um, you know Alex Colville and Christopher and Mary Pratt and the Wyeths and so um, a lot of that sort of sensibility about landscape and and the sensitive kinds of paintings of of local flora and local um color really really influenced me early in my life i'm curious how you feel your education as a biologist influenced your work at the beginning or even now i think i think in a lot of ways i majored in biology for the same reasons that i became an artist i i'm fascinated by the forms that life takes and I'm delighted by its variety. Uh, on the other hand, I think in a lot of ways, as a scientist, um, the direction of science is is to categorize and to name things, you know, to 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 go through the world looking for ways to to specify things. And in a funny way as an artist, I think it's the opposite process that as you get into a painting, certainly for me, as I get into a painting, I find I think less and less with words. I think less and less about what the object is and what that object looks like and more and more about just light and the way it creates contour and just form and the way it fits into a composition. And so um, in many ways, I think that the same, the same impulse is behind both things, but the way that, they, the way that they're carried out is, is different. I like that comparison. Yeah, I think a lot about, you know, um, Mary Oliver's poem in Blackwater Woods, uh, where she says something along the lines of uh, the ponds, whatever their names are, are nameless now. And I, I think that's that's really what happens in painting is that, that things, you realize the abstraction of nature and the way that, um, the way that, that they, the things just look is, it's something outside of words and language, you know? Yeah, we can only try so hard to qualify and mm -hmm. categorize our world kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, the exhibition, Wandering the Edge of the World, includes 12 paintings and two of them, Edge of the World 1 and Edge of the World 2, they help to inspire the title. And I just want to spend some time talking about these paintings a little bit and for you, what, what they're about. Both of those paintings are paintings of, of ditches by the side of the road, which is a, a subject I spend a lot of time with, and I think actually more as as 
I started exploring it a couple of years ago. And at the moment, I think I have four ditch water paintings on the go. Um, they're, they're both, they consider drowned flora, drowned flowers and leaves and, and things. And I just, it, for me, it's an endlessly fascinating subject, the, the way that light hits water. And I don't know, there's something, there's something about those kinds of images of, of growth in water that uh, they, they, uh, they sort of say something to me of, of perseverance and of hardiness and a, a will to live. I spent actually last night, I was driving my daughter home from work and uh, we <laughs> ended up pulled over at the side of the road for a while so I could take pictures of clover in the ditch. <laughs> I think uh, there's something really compelling about seeing the sky reflected from the side of the road. It's, it's a really potent reminder to me that the world, the edge of the world that we, that we exist in, our world, um, is something that is, it borders on other worlds, worlds that we don't think about or see very often, un unless we really take the time and attention to notice them. That's really true. The, the world we live in is complex and it's more than what we see every day. Mm -hmm. um, your, your paintings, all of them in this exhibition, they're, they're very dense and the canvases are filled edge to edge with depictions of branches and trees and water and plants of all kinds. And I'm wondering what your process is like when you create these very densely popu populated canvases. Well, first of all, I go for a lot of walks and I think um, I spend a great deal of time just looking at things and, and noticing things. And when I, when I approach a canvas, I, I don't tend to work from an image, a specific image. Um, often I'll take a lot of reference pictures, but I don't tend to work directly from photographs. And in fact, sometimes I work from dreams um, and I'll just use photographs to kind of jog my memory as to, to what things look like. I'll think about the things that I want to focus on in a painting, and those are generally the things that have caught my attention as I've just been out in the world. You know, I try to not approach my paintings from a, a cerebral place. My, my paintings aren't about ideas. They're really just about phenomena and, and how I react to them. They're about the things that I see in the world and the things that I care about. And, uh, and so I, I really paint from this very kind of visceral place of just noticing and acknowledging and and just loving you know you, you stumble across these little miracles all the time if you're looking and they're always astonishing and i always want to paint about them because that's that's how i narrate my life i, I narrate everything that i care about through paint so when i when i go to a canvas i'll i'll do a rough sketch or sometimes several they tend to be quite rough and often i'll look back at them in old sketchbooks and i'll think what what was that supposed to be they're like doctor's notes or something and then uh, I'll lay in sort of the areas that I want to focus on. And from there, I just, I try to let the painting tell me what it wants to do. I try to sort of step back and let it happen. Because as you work, you, you, really, you really forget yourself in the, in the process. And it's a bit like a dance. It's just um, you, you lay out some information and the, the painting tells you what it, what it wants next. So a combination of an intuitive approach and you take... Um, you take photographic references and things like that, but also rely on your own mind and your dreams. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I like that you said that um, 
you you choose what you want to bring focus to and you want to paint what you love and what you care about and it just fills my heart with joy that the canvases are so full because that just means that there's so much oh that makes me happy because i think the world is so full right and and there's there's a part of me that just I want everything. I'm extremely <laughs> greedy in my paintings. I, I really have this more is more mentality when it comes to painting. And that's not a very fashionable way to paint. There's a, a lot, most of the, the painters I truly admire are actually fairly spare painters. And um, my paintings are a little bit of a, an anomaly. And I feel like they're a bit of an emotional risk because I'm really, I'm really trying to take everything and put it in there. <laughs> and uh, it sometimes it works and, and sometimes it doesn't. But I think, uh, for me the kind of person I am is it demands that I try you know well I think you do it pretty successfully so thank you (laughs) um I want (laughs) to bring attention to another painting Nocturne so this is a bit of a spooky painting to me the painting is Mm -hmm. a moonlit forest filled with these tall trees and a tangle of brush and flowers I'm wondering where did this imagery come from this is, it's very much a dream painting. And it's a its a painting that I'm always kind of, every few years I'll make a painting that's kind of touching the edges of, it's a specific dream actually that I had in 2010 um, of being in a forest and realizing that all around me, I could see and hear the trees breathing. And it was an extremely spooky dream, but it's one that ab- like actually, has influenced almost everything I've done since because it it was one of those things that seemed so profoundly true that I kind of woke up and thought, no, this is actually what's going on. And so um, I've spent a lot of time in the bush. I used to live in the bush. And, uh, you know, when you're out there and it's very dark and you're reliant on the moon, you realize very quickly that we we occupy a a sort of a sliver of of daylight and artificial light. We're very rarely animals that are out in the in the true dark. And when you are, it's so profoundly disorienting. But you're also aware of how, like how occupied the dark is. Like the the number of eyes that you see and the number of sounds that you hear that you're not accustomed to and can't relate to because they're not part of your normal life. Even when you live out there, I mean, you were so rarely outside at night because it is so profoundly disorienting. And that's something I I always kind of, you know, the the disorientation feeling is something I think all of my paintings try to touch on. But that specific night feeling, it's almost too scary to paint in a way, so I don't do it very often. But it's also so compelling, beautiful and soft, you know. And so, yeah, every so often I just try to try to get in there. And that's what that painting is. Yeah, it it definitely, you know, it feels spooky, but you're like, how is this spooky? It looks magical, kind of whimsical. Yeah, it has all the things. It's like it has flowers and there's nothing menacing in it, but it is still spooky. It feels like a kind of separation from from what you're accustomed to, from the, the sort of known quantity of the world. Yeah, and maybe that's what that is. It's just the unknown, really. Yeah. Of course, it's spooky to anybody. Of course, yeah. And also, like, you just don't, you just don't, you don't perceive depth in the same way in the dark. Things aren't where you expect them to be in the dark, right? Mm -hmm. It's always a little bit of a surprise. Oh, definitely. Um, In the exhibition, there are two paintings that depict nests. So I know that 
in your work, you tend to do that a lot. And these two particular paintings that depict nests in the exhibition are Cradle and Little Dream. So where did this fascination with depicting nests in your work come from? I think nests are possibly my favorite thing to paint. Like if I, if I feel like I've lost track of a painting or, or I'm not painting very well or I don't know what I'm doing, I'll often just step away and go paint a nest. Partly because I have a collection of probably 70 nests at my disposal and, and so it's easy to just like take one out and look at it. And partly because I think nests are just, they're such incredible forms. I think they're, they're astonishing pieces of architecture. Um, they're really potent reminders that other minds in the world have, you know, other perceptions and other priorities. Um, I think uh, birds' capacity to interpret their surroundings and find the materials to build, you know, these incredibly variable structures. You know, I have nests that have ribbons in them or like I have one that has the liner of a mitten or a ski jacket or something in it. Um, you know, various feathers. You can really see the personality of the birds and in, in how haphazard they are even in one species. Like some some are very tight and organized and some are really very messy. <laughs> um, I just, I find them so beautiful and fascinating. And I think symbolically for me, they're incredibly powerful. They, they, they stand in really readily as a metaphor for, for love, I think, you know, that they're, they're these objects that are built for the purpose of rearing young and for nothing else. They, once a nest is abandoned, then it, it's really just an artifact. It's, it's this thing that has contained life and they're, I don't know, they're haunting. I think they're just, they're so beautiful. So yeah, I would I would quite happily, if I had to paint one thing for the rest of my life, it would be nests. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's interesting to know that you have a collection of them to reference, like physical objects. Yeah, it's really neat. People send them to me all the time. And I'm really strict. Uh, you know, if people tell me that they've found a nest, I'm like, if it's in a tree, I don't want it. I don't want it to come out of, of where it is. I'll take windfall nests or, you know, nests that yeah, have come down and by accident in a if someone's been falling trees on their property or whatever but uh, you know any nest that's still in place is a, is a nest that someone will likely use you know birds do return to their nests fairly often and other animals will make use of them but yeah I have nests from like all over Canada and down in the states and it's people I've never met have sent me nests in the mail it's lovely in, in Cradle, the painting, one of the paintings that features the nest, it looks like the nest is floating in water. And water is something that appears quite a bit in this collection of paintings for this exhibition, specifically paintings that were done in 2020. So what was going through your mind at the time when you were making these works to include so much water? Well, partly, I think, uh, in the when I was painting early in 2020, making these paintings was a kind of a kind of prayer almost, a kind of wishful thinking, because of course, as as climate change ramps up, the, the fear of the fire season, especially after this last winter for us, summer for them in Australia, is so real. And the memory of the, the last really bad fire year two years ago is still very fresh. And uh, so for me, I think in a lot of ways, these paintings are wishful thinking and they're they're wishing for exactly the kind of summer we're having, which of course has its own problems you know the the flooding has been 
very serious and you know farmers are struggling and lots of people are struggling but i would still take it over fire any day of the week um also i think one time i, I saw a nest that had fallen into the coquitlam river this was years ago and i've never stopped thinking about it and uh partly because to see something like that is is one of those surprises one of those sort of astonishing little miracles you never really expect to see but the the fact that it was in the water and that somehow i think the surface tension of the edge of the river was holding it away from the current and so it was holding its shape but you knew if you if you were to lean over and pick it up it would just fall apart it would just be wet grass and so i don't know there was something about the, the sort of fragility of it and and also something about like a nest being subsumed by the reflected sky you know what i mean that that mm. to see to see a thing that would normally be over your head um drowning in in what looks like the sky is is somehow really poetic i mean it's not something it's it's something i will always think about i may never see that again but it will always always be in my mind and this these reflections they come back again and again and in postscript there's a depiction of trees reflecting in water and it's really hard to tell if you know you're looking at something from above or below water and the same goes with hindsight another painting where it's unclear if you're looking at you know aquatic plants from underneath or they're you know non-aquatic plants drowned in water and, and you really don't know and you're playing with this sort of tension between spaces yeah it's it's um I like that sort of ambiguity, right? That uh, there's an uncertainty of, I don't know, uh, there's there's a, a kind of feeling of one thing or the other, like a disorientation. Again, I think, you know, you don't know if you're looking up or down. That's a feeling that anybody that's had a near drowning experience has had, right? That you, you don't know whether you're you're swimming in one direction or the other. And I, I think with both of those, uh, you know, I think a lot when I'm painting of just sort of the feeling I'm trying to get at. And I remember reading an article about baby sea turtles, like part of the problem with sea turtles not migrating to the sea when they're hatched is that they go towards city lights. They're disoriented by the lights of big cities. And so they just go in the wrong direction. And the same when, you know, when the moon has been full or really bright and you're out walking and you'll notice that there are just like tons and tons of moths that have drowned in the ditch because they've gone toward the wrong light source, right? And I, I think that that's in a lot of ways, and I mean, this is not what I'm painting about, but it, it can't help but creep in because I think in a lot of ways, that's where we are. We're in this place where it's really difficult to know up from down. It's really difficult to know which direction to look or, 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 or where, where we even are what's going to happen next and uh i think that that feeling of that tension just naturally finds its way into the images that i find compelling and so yeah i do i really like the the sense of the reflected trees the lack of solidity um the the uncertainty about direction the, those things really find their way into a lot of my work i find more and more as time goes by and the titles of your work too, they really draw me in and they add another layer to this maybe ambiguity that you're you're painting intentionally or unintentionally. 
and I find them incredibly poetic and evocative. Return and Reminder are two paintings I'd like to bring focus to, and they seem somewhat linked by their titles. They are linked by their titles, and that's not always intentional. I, I, I don't ever name my paintings until they're finished, and then I kind of think about what I was thinking about while painting them. But I think that those two particularly, they kind of consider time and uncertainty. Um, I think for both, uh, there's a sense of what the world looks like and might look like um, in the near future. Uh, there's there's a sense of, I think, not shifting seasons, but the, a juxtaposition of one season over or under the, the other, uh, shifting palettes in the case of um, Reminder. It, there's a an incongruity, I guess, between some of the parts of those paintings and uh, I really like that. Actually, I find that that thinking about two images simultaneously um, forces a, a kind of dance with the painting that was technically quite difficult with both of those paintings. And I I I really like the way they turned out. They they did a sort of unexpected thing. Both of them. They they I don't have a strict plan when I go into paintings like that. They I had to, I did underpaintings for both of them and then they both just sat there for a couple of months until I realized what needed to happen next. And that's often what happens is I'll begin a piece and uh, and then lose the thread and have to walk away and then all of a sudden it'll resolve itself. And that happened in both of those instances. I'd like to revisit Edge of the World 1 and 2. So these works, titles, they make me think of a pretty bleak scenario Mm -hmm. Um, but upon first look, you see these paintings and they don't really embody that sense of a bleak scenario at all. They're really beautiful and whimsical and like reminder and return, almost dreamlike. Yeah, I think, I think when I was painting those paintings, I was really thinking about that, that the world is not just our world, that all of these paintings are really trying to consider that what we see of the world is fragmented by our senses and by the way we carve the world up with roads and paths and so on, and by the way, way we, we prioritize information, and honestly, by capitalism and the way that capitalism co-ops our thoughts. The fact of the matter is that these paintings are, are, are kind of luxurious. They, they, they are paintings that reflect my great good fortune in having the time uh, and the leisure to sit around and look at puddles, right? So, uh, you know, not everyone has that. And I think in a lot of ways that other worlds, like the world of fish or of plants or of insects, it's not something that, cap those are unthinkable thoughts in capitalism a lot of the time, that they're outside of, of money and of goods and of the exchange between humans. They're, they're worlds that don't even know or consider our existence even even though we've often created them by you know making roads and digging ditches and um you know cutting trees down and all of these things that that outside of our priorities and preconceptions about what's important there are you know tadpoles hatching and salamanders making little lives and voles and rabbits and all of the things that actually make the world go round that don't know and don't care what 
is going on with us and that don't have the length of lifespan to understand or to really experience in their own lives what this ecological collapse means, what warming summers and winters mean. They, they experience the effects, but not the cause and not in the context that we think about things. So I find that just endlessly fascinating. And that's really what all of these paintings are about. They're, they're about being inside the landscape. And, and they're kind of an attempt not to abdicate my humanity or my place in you know, the, the, the omnicide that's going on around us, but to consider that my experience isn't the only experience. Hmm. The world's bigger than us. Yeah. 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 And I think that they're, they're all around us, the other worlds, right? They're, they're, they're there when you step out into the dark. They're there when you go down to the river, when the salmon are spawning and you realize that the salmon absolutely don't care about you. <laughs> you know, that, that um, the frog in your path has never given you a thought that, even if you are an imminent threat to the survival of its whole species, a butterfly doesn't know what you are, mm. you know? And I think that's just, that's just such a, a wondrous thing and something that we forget so easily in this system that we've built of, of prioritizing humans and human needs over absolutely everything else. A lot of your work definitely carries this environmental um, angle or intent by way of you being an environmentally minded individual mm -hmm. and another painting that really makes me think about that is early spring so it appears to hold a subtle environmental message in its title and my mind goes to flooding and increasing temperatures during the winter months and looking at the painting uh, what I see could be a depiction of you know, the ground and the grass and other flora saturated by water. It could be a topographic view. It, it's hard to know, again, what you're looking at. Yeah, this is, it's definitely, again, a painting that's trying to orient itself in a, in a way that is ambiguous, right? Oh, definitely. And I see in your artist statement, you talk about, you know, being inter interested in doc documenting the edges of things. And to me, this painting is a particularly good example, probably mm -hmm. because it almost looks like like that topographic view, like a map where you see that like more stark edge between land and water. Yeah, I think that's a really perceptive question. And I, I do, I, there was definitely a sort of a feeling of, um, again, disorientation, but that yeah, very much, a, there's sort of continents of shadow in this painting. And I think uh, it, there is a map-like quality to it. And that's something that I was, I may pursue in future paintings. It was, it was sort of testing out uh, some thoughts about, I guess, plate tectonics <laughs> and other things. Um, but it's, uh, it is definitely a, a painting that carries an environmental message or at least a, an environmental concern I'm sort of careful about thinking about messages in my paintings because when I'm painting I'm I'm not really trying to communicate with other people I'm really just trying to I'm just trying to connect with with the place or the place in my mind I'm I really don't tend to consider too much the message of the painting while I'm while I'm making it um, 
that painting is I, I think it's a I think it worked out really well. It did what I wanted it to do, but it is definitely thinking about uh, about climate warming and about uh, the effect of sun and of all the paintings in this series, I think it definitely is the one that that most specifically speaks to my aforementioned fear of fire that this this sense of an a, a wet early spring, which is not really what we ended up having, but I was thinking it was probably what was going to happen um, is is a fearful painting uh it's it's in a way it's a celebration of of water and of it's sort of buffering capacity against fire, but it's also an understanding that the earlier those wet springs come, the more likely that we end up with the long, fiery summers. And, uh, you know, we can't predict these things. This is the nature of, of climate collapse is that it's not that there's a new normal. There is never a new normal. It's chaotic. And so we, we just kind of roll with the punches every year. And this year it seems like it's going to be a rain punch, which honestly suits me fine. Uh, but I think in a way I used to, when I lived in the bush, I dreaded winter because it meant so much work just to stay warm and just to, you know, keep, keep going. And I no longer dread the winter. In fact, I feel incredibly relieved when fall comes around and everything isn't on fire. And this painting is, is in a way a tr an attempt to sort of stave off that, that fire season. You've mentioned your time living in the bush. Uh, quite a bit and I was wondering if maybe if you're willing to talk a little bit about your time there and what it was like and where exactly you were living. Yeah so at a, for about four years while I was married my ex-husband and I and our children lived in a yurt in northern BC outside of Prince George uh, just north of Nuka Lake uh, on a property that he had bought in his early 20s and still has. Uh, it was a very small yurt. It was 16 feet in diameter. We built it ourselves. Or I should really say he built it because I was mostly concerned with taking care of babies and things at that point in my life. And it was, it was an extremely demanding uh, situation. It, you know, we we were off grid. We didn't have a well. We were hauling water. We had horses. We had all these little children, um, and we weren't we weren't out in the bush. You know, cutting trees i mean we were cutting trees for firewood and things like that but we weren't clearing land for farmland or whatever we were attempting to live in the forest and we did for for a few years and it was hell on my marriage <laughs> <laughs> but it was also it was also a really a really thorough indoctrination into um the world that exists outside of Outside of the the normal sort of creature comforts, it, it, it first of all, I mean, living in a yurt means that you're living in a in a canvas. You're basically living in a tent, right? So you're not really particularly safe at any time. You know, a, a bear could conceivably knock your house down, and none ever did. But it's uh, there's a a sense of being the kind of animal that that we are, which is something I I think about a lot that we have more in common with other species of, of land mammals than, than we, than not, right? We, we are still very much connected to the weather and to changes in the climate and uh, to cycles of light and dark, especially if we're not living with electric light. 
Um, and for me to, I had grown up in a city and in a condominium and to live that way and to find out that I readily took to living that way um, was a real revelation. And it allowed me to feel a kind of solidarity with trees and, you know, rabbits and grouse and other things that I probably would never have developed a kind of connection with before. I had better dreams when I lived in the yurt, if not better, at least clearer and more, I don't know, there, there, there was something, there was something much cleaner about my dreams when I, when I lived that way. And there's a, there's a great deal that I miss about it. I don't think that I would leap at the opportunity to do it again because it is, it is extraordinarily difficult, but it is also very, very rewarding. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting and maybe I'm reading into it, but you, you talk about the edges of things being an interest for you when you paint and to think about living in a yurt, which like you said, is just a canvas wall separating you from outside. That edge is so thin. It is so thin and it's in a round structure is also a very different way to live you think different thoughts when you live in a round structure it sounds really weird but it's absolutely true and in a funny way because of the shape of the thing and the thinness of the walls the the yurt acted almost like an eardrum and so the outside sounds were amplified inside the yurt uh so that it you know the sound of a, a coyote outside or whatever would very easily infiltrate your dreams and you start to pay attention to what the birds are doing and what that indicates, there was a fox that used to come around every evening and we didn't interact with her directly, although we would sometimes like hide eggs in the woods for her or whatever. But we always knew she was there because all of a sudden the birds would be quiet. And uh, it was just such an interesting, the, the things you can tell by what the birds are doing at any given time are so, it's just a fascinating way to live. We had, my kids were really little and they were sort of obsessed with this documentary that we had on videotape and we had one of those little, battery-powered DVD players, and they would watch this thing about the Galapagos Islands, and there was a lot of Finch song on that that DVD. And after, I don't know, a month or two of of them watching this thing repeatedly, we noticed that the Stellar's Jays around the yurt had actually picked up the song of some of the Galapagos Finches. It was the craziest thing. And I thought, imagine, you know, if there was just this sect of of, uh, Stellar's Jays that you know, carried on and developed this finch song. I read that article last week about the the white-throated sparrow song that has uh, changed across Canada over the last year or so. And uh, yeah, just the way that that language evolves and the different ways that that birds use it, it's it's just such an amazing world to be in. It really is. Yeah. And to reference your artist's statement again, you also state that your paintings are an examination of your place among living things and the changes that you've witnessed. So for you, what value or satisfaction comes from documenting these changes? I think for me, it's, it's the, it's the satisfaction of being who I am. I think um, growing up on the East coast, I spent a lot of time as a kid, just staring into tidal pools. And as I, as I got older and, never lost my fascination with staring into tidal pools. I used to feel really sort of hard done by that nobody was ever going to pay me to stare into tidal pools because I couldn't think of any other job I really wanted. And, uh, you know, the necessity of making a living is a, a concept that kind of creeps up on you as you're growing up. And it's a concept that I really, 
I hate, I hate the idea that we have to somehow justify our existences by making money. But uh, somehow I, I seem to have find, found a way to, to do that, to, to just watch and draw and think about the things I want to watch and draw and think about. I mean, I think in a lot of ways we live, we live in a really terrible time. We're coming into a period of climate chaos and ecosystem collapse. And I think to, to love anything is to consider the grief of, of its dying, that it's going to die possibly in front of us, you know, at any time. And it's a privilege to, to, to love the world with all of your attention and to grieve it at the same time. I think witnessing, witnessing what's going on around us is extraordinarily important. I think that the, 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 the trouble that the planet is in is worthy of all of our attention and the beauty that the planet still has, the, the beauty of, of life and living things and ecosystem, the, the, the incredible resiliency, the incredible strength of life is, is something that we should all do our best to spend our time honoring. And I think capitalism a lot of the time really robs us of that opportunity. So I feel extraordinarily fortunate that I get to sort of step outside of that drive to just keep making enough money to live and actually, you know, spend an hour looking into a puddle at the end of the day. That sounds really great, actually. It is. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, what do you hope that viewers will take away from their experience of wandering the edge of the world in your work? I always hope that my work serves as a reminder that the world is still beautiful and still alive and still deserving of attention and care. And I, I think it's, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, there's a bit of hubris in, in the hope that, uh, that my, my work will in any way influence anyone's outlook. Um, and it's not, it's not necessarily why I paint, but it sure is something I hope that, that, people can walk away from the work and just notice a bit more because I think when we notice things we learn to care about them we learn to fight for them we learn to witness them properly and if if I can have some small part in people paying a bit more attention loving a bit more then that I can't imagine anything better neither can I Thanks so much, Corey. I really appreciate you talking about your work and sharing a bit about where you come from as an artist. And I can't wait to share this exhibition with the public. It's an absolute delight for me. I'm just thrilled. Thank you so much, Megan. We should go look and cuddle sometime. I'd love that. Tracing Lines is produced by Two Rivers Gallery. Intro and outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And the adventurous, compassionate artist I interviewed today is Corey Hardiman. To learn more about Corey and her work, be sure to visit her website, which is linked in our show notes. If you haven't already, take some time to visit the digital version of her exhibition, Wandering the Edge of the World, also linked in our show notes. Want to see the exhibition in person? You can view it at Mackenzie Community Arts Centre from August 13th to September 13th, Valley Museum in McBride from September 24th to October 18th, and in Prince George at Two Rivers Gallery from October 29th to November 29th. To keep tabs on Two Rivers Gallery, our exhibitions and programs, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
Tracing Lines is available anywhere you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hope you tune in again next time.